Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, Prairie pushback. First, we had the Alberta Sovereignty Act, and now Saskatchewan is drawing the line and gearing up for a fight with the federal government. We'll talk to Premier Scott Moe about his newly penned white paper, and the press gallery will also look at this renewed resistance facing Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Then, Hockey Canada's future. There's still a lot of work to do to reform the organization, to shift the culture within the organization. Hockey Canada's management team is on their way out and the World Juniors are going ahead in the Maritimes. But how quickly can the organization change? And the view from Kyiv. Five months after reopening Canada's embassy, Canada's ambassador to Ukraine joins us to talk about the situation on the ground and what more Canada can do to help Ukrainians continue to push back on Russia. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. And we'll bring you the latest on two police officers shot and killed last night in Innisfil, north of Toronto, a 33-year-old and a 54-year-old. We have Doug Ford. He is about to address the media now. Have a listen. Well, it's, it's very sad. It's a senseless tragedy once again. Um, and my heart just bleeds for, for his family, their families, I should say, and, and the women and men that serve every single day. Uh, it's... Uh, it's terrible, and we're just here to show our support. We're here with Minister Mulroney, and we're going to show him our, our support. Like the vast majority of Ontarians and Canadians support our police, and you'd never think it would, it would happen in South Simcoe, but that just shows you it can happen anywhere. Uh, we had another yeah. police officer in the slider last month, and mm -hmm. now we have Well, that, yeah, well, that, that's, you know, I come from the policing family and, and the sacrifices they make. You know, they're running into danger as everyone else is running out. Uh, as I said before, uh, celebrating birthdays, Christmases, Thanksgiving, and our family, uh, three of my girls were there, none of the boys were there, they were all working, or they had worked that night. And these are the sacrifices our police officers uh, make day in and day out. And... Uh, we all need to support them in, in uh, these very challenging times for, for them. But again, our, our, our prayers and thoughts and our condolences go out to the family and all the women and men that uh, serve their communities across our province. We are learning that the suspect is described in the community as having a troubling past. Uh, mm -hmm. Perhaps mental health was an issue. Uh, is this something that we need to focus on to help our first responders? Yeah, well, we have an extensive mental health uh, program through Minister uh, Tobolo. Uh, we're pouring money into mental health across our province and, and with our uh, first responders, no matter if it's paramedics or firefighters or, or police officers. Uh, but that's something that we always have to stay focused on. What's your message to the, the families of these fallen officers? Oh, my heart breaks for you, and I'm so, so sorry for your, for your loss. Uh, you know, one officer was near retirement. The other young officer was passionate about his job. Uh, he was passionate about mental health as well. Uh, but this is this is a, a, again a senseless tragedy, and we and we're going to be there for them. We're always going to have their their backs and and always support these uh, families. Do you have a connection to 
Those two police officers have been identified as 54-year-old Constable Morgan Russell and 33-year-old Devin Northrup. They were killed after an exchange of gunfire with a suspect inside a home on Tuesday night. The SIU says they were responding to a disturbance call that came from family members. The suspect was pronounced dead at the scene. One officer was rushed to the hospital in Barrie, where he died. The other was airlifted to Toronto, where he succumbed to his injuries. And now to Saskatchewan, where another province is ready to draw a line in the jurisdictional sand. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe says his government is ready to go toe-to-toe against Ottawa to protect his economy from what he calls destructive federal policies. Sound familiar? Danielle Smith won the United Conservative leadership campaigning on her Alberta Sovereignty Act. And Quebec Premier Francois Legault is ready to turn up the political heat on Ottawa. So what does Saskatchewan want? A white paper from the province says nine federal environmental regulations will cost the province's economy $111 billion between next year and 2035. Mo says the province will take key steps to gain more autonomy, and it's all in the paper, in the paper entitled Drawing the Line, Defending Saskatchewan's Economic Autonomy. Now, with the changes in that paper, Mo says the province can protect Saskatchewan's constitutional rights, have a t- have autonomy over immigration, recognize Saskatchewan's contributions to sustainable growth, take legal action to keep control of emissions, and use more autonomy in tax collection. So, will it take, what will it take to go from a white paper to actual policy? Let's find out. Joining me now is Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe. Welcome to the program, Premier Moe. Thanks very much for making the time. Well, thanks so much, Mike, and I would uh, just offer our condolences uh, on behalf of the province of Saskatchewan to the family, the friends, and, and the colleagues of the, the two officers that uh, passed in the, the line of duty uh, just recently. Yeah, well said. Well, let's get to your, your white paper here. You say that Saskatchewan needs to be with a nation within a nation, similar to how the province of Quebec operates with broader powers within the Confederation. But Quebec isn't happy with the deal that they have right now within the Confederation. So is Quebec's position your starting point? Uh, you know, when it comes to uh, immigration, I think we align with Quebec. Uh, we would uh, not only like to, uh, you know, have certain powers on uh, the selection of uh, the, the the qualifications of people that are uh, coming into Saskatchewan, um, like Quebec has today, as they have some added. Uh, um, um, control uh, with respect to that in the decision making. Uh, They want even more. I think we'd align uh, with them uh, all the way and I think many other provinces would as well as we're faced with, uh, you know, labour shortages uh, in our communities. But we're also uh, doing uh, what we need to do in in bringing in, um, for example, uh, Ukrainian refugees uh, into the province of Saskatchewan as well. Uh, um, You know, that's one example of where we most certainly would align uh, with Quebec. And uh, the, The white paper that we released yesterday is not exclusive Exclusively about, you know, in any way picking fights with the federal government. It's about unlocking Saskatchewan's potential. We've had significant investment announced over the course of the past year, um, and we know there's more investment that is looking at uh, investing in Saskatchewan in, in producing food, fuel, and fertilizer uh, here. Uh, they're doing so because we have the ability to grow those industries. Um, they're also doing so because we're producing some of the most sustainable, from a carbon perspective, food, fuel, and fertilizer that you can access anywhere on Earth. And that's something we're proud of uh, here in this province. And most certainly, uh, we would hope that all Canadians could be proud of uh, not only the products that we're producing, but how we're producing those products.
So, Premier, you brought up immigration first. Let's start there. You said you want a policy to ensure that Saskatchewan has the people it needs. Does that mean that Saskatchewan wants to keep certain people out of the province? I mean, what if there are some people who are coming to Canada and they want to settle in Saskatchewan, but they're not the people that you say you need? Mo no, no, most certainly uh, it's beyond uh, skills, uh, prioritizing uh, various skills. Uh, most certainly uh, uh, we're an open and welcoming province and have been uh, for, uh, you know, throughout our history. And I think in many cases that's how uh, we got uh, to the, be, uh, the, the population ultimately that we are today. The fact remains is that we need uh, higher numbers of people uh, coming into Saskatchewan uh, to fill the job vacancies that we have. We do need to prioritize a number of those uh, for various uh, skills that we uh, require and need to fill. Um, but we also are here to uh, welcome others as we have uh, as we uh, move for example uh, Syrian refugees into Canada we took uh, more than our per capita share here in the province we're open and welcoming uh, when it comes to refugees we're uh, far above I think any other province in the number of Ukrainian refugees that we have welcomed uh, to Saskatchewan as well in fact I think we're landing uh, another flight of Ukrainian refugees uh, into the province here uh, over the course of the next number of days so autonomy over your natural resources is one of the pillars of this, but in this accounting of it, you don't factor in the economic benefits that might be generated by using alternative energy, nor do you factor in the federal carbon tax rebate to people. So is this really a true accounting of the current situation in your province? Yeah, I'd say it's even a, a low number uh, when you look at uh, the, the future of, of our province. Uh, yes, there are some rebates that come back. They don't go back uh, to the folks that, that actually pay them or the businesses uh, that, are, that are paying those. And it does all nine policies together create a great degree of uncertainty uh, for investment in Saskatchewan. And what uh, we are doing is, is going to uh, reassert, reassert uh, our autonomy, as provinces have, over the development of our, our natural resources. The Constitution says it's that way. The spirit and the intent of the Constitution uh, indicates that provinces most certainly do have uh, that jurisdiction and we're going to reassert um, our provincial jurisdiction over developing uh, those um, those natural resources uh, here in Saskatchewan. When you look ahead, uh, there are indirect uh, impacts of a number of these policies. For instance, uh, when we don't have a pipeline capacity in Western Canada, that, that oil then ends up on our rails, uh, restricting the capacity that we have for food products, restricting the capacity we have for our uh, potash, which is the cleanest in the world, uh, 50% uh, less carbon uh, in per ton of potash, Saskatchewan potash uh, relative to our competitors. Um, and w if you look at the $111 billion, that's on today's uh, production levels. Uh, we have $15 billion of investment arriving uh, just this year in Saskatchewan. More uh, to come in the days ahead. Uh, most certainly, uh, we are going to be producing more in the months and years ahead in this province, and that number ultimately is going to climb. And so, uh, yes, some of that is returned. It's not returned uh, to the folks that make the investment. Uh, those folks are already making uh, the parallel investment in producing the most sustainable resources in the world, which is the goal, I would remind everyone. Um, and, um, and most certainly it's a low number when you look at the indirect and future impacts of uh, these nine policies and the uncertainty uh, in our investment environment that they, they can create. What we're going to do is uh, provide uh, as much certainty as we can at the provincial level and, as I said, unlock uh, Saskatchewan's potential to achieve what we know, it, what we, know we can as Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan people and collectively as a province. Now, Premier, I've got less than a minute here, so I need this question to be brief or this answer to be brief. But as a Premier, you have limited amount of political capital. Why is it that you're spending all of this on this white paper instead of the health care transfers that are going to be a major issue with the federal government? The word health care, the phrase health care, doesn't appear once in your white paper. Why is that? 
Absolutely. This is an economic document on ensuring uh, that we can unlock Saskatchewan's but, potential. But aren't the we two are tied active, either way? Because it, participants it, it, on Premier, with respect, you're, you're basically saying that you need more autonomy over certain yeah. things. And some people are calling this a smokescreen yeah. that you're not looking at the stuff at home. No, if you, if you don't have a strong and growing economy, simply you can't invest in health care. We just invested, I'd say, in a nation-leading human resource uh, recruitment incentive uh, and training plan uh, here in Saskatchewan. I'd say it's, it's first in class in Canada. Uh, you can't do that uh, without a strong and growing economy. You can't put the tens of millions of dollars behind uh, that type of a program without a st- the strength of, of our Saskatchewan economy. And we would add that a, a strong Saskatchewan will always lead to a stronger federation of Canada. We believe that here in this province. And, and we had hoped that our all levels of government, including the federal government, would would believe that um, as we reassert uh, our rightful um, our, our rightful duty or in jurisdiction under the the constitution uh, to develop the natural resources that the Saskatchewan people and Canadians ultimately would like to see developed because they are uh, the most sustainable in the world and they're resources, quite frankly, uh, that we all need. Premier, we're going to have to leave it there. We appreciate you taking the time to join us, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe. Thanks again for being with us. Thank you, Mike. Well, next door, uh, Alberta Premier Daniel Smith is taking harsh criticism for these comments yesterday about people who didn't get the COVID-19 vaccine. So they have been the most discriminated against group that I've ever witnessed in my lifetime. That's a pretty extreme level of discrimination. So that was Daniel Smith claiming the unvaccinated Canadians are the most discriminated group in her lifetime. But less than 24 hours later, she walked those comments back. Now, let's get the latest with CTV's Alberta, Alberta Bureau Chief Bill Fortier. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start with the blowback first. What kind of response did Premier Smith get to those comments yesterday? Well, Mike, it was quick and it was harsh, as as you can imagine. You know, minority groups, whether sexual gender minorities or ethnic racial minorities, are, you know, putting up their hands and saying, hang on, like, you know, we face significantly worse in your lifetime. You know, that's half a century. You know, that, you know, that they point, indigenous leaders point to residential schools. The last one didn't close down until, the last couple didn't close down until the mid to late 90s, well within her lifetime. You know, hate crimes are on the rise, according to Stats Canada. Uh, you know, just just look at uh, London, Ontario in June of last year. You know, there was a hate motivated attack that killed four people, members of a Muslim family. Uh, you know, police allege it was hate motivated and that a guy drove his truck into that family. So a lot of people, specifically minorities, are, you know, looking for an apology and a retraction of some sort. So did they get that today? Because, I mean, no, she's walking them back today, essentially. And I mean, walking back is a good way to put it. She didn't apologize. She didn't retract. In fact, a three paragraph statement that she put out, uh, the first paragraph basically just reemphasized what she said yesterday, uh, focused on what the unvaccinated are facing, people who chose uh, to ignore the advice of public health experts and not get a vaccine. The entire first paragraph of her statement focused on what they're going through. It wasn't until, you know, the second statement that she said she did not mean to trivialize what minorities have faced. But again, no apology, uh, no retraction, uh, which certainly a lot of people were looking to see. She did promise that she was going to try to uh, start meeting with uh, minority groups to hear their concerns, though. 
So a day in, on the job as Premier, less than a week as leader of the UCP, I mean, it's not exactly the best start here, but I mean, what does this mean for what's next for her as a leader? Well, you know, she's got a lot on her plate and she put a lot on there herself. Um, so, you know, probably she's hoping that this uh, brushes over fairly quickly. I do expect that some people won't let that happen. But, you, you know, in the, in the coming days, I mean, first of all, she has to get a seat, right? She was the only UCP candidate without a seat in the legislature. Uh, so there's a by-election next month in uh, southeastern Alberta. She'll run as an MLA to try to actually get a seat. Uh, she's got a lot of other promises. You know, she promised to overhaul Alberta Health Services in the, within the next three months. That's a massive organization. That's the organization that runs health care in the entire province of Alberta. So, you know, we're talking about thousands and thousands of employees and, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of management that she's promised to completely rip apart and, and sort of reorganize this whole thing. That's a big promise. So, uh, and of course, there's the Alberta Sovereignty Act, you know, that was sold last summer as essentially legislation that would allow Alberta to ignore federal laws and rulings that are not deemed to be in Alberta's best interest, according to the government of Alberta. You know, that was walked back a little bit yesterday when Danielle Smith said, well, when it comes to the Supreme Court and rulings of the Supreme Court, we will abide by them. A lot of people thought, you know, that this was a piece of legislation that would say we don't care what comes out of uh, the, you know, Parliament Hill or the courts. We'll do what we feel is best for Alberta. And it was clear that this legislation, when it comes forward, may be a tad watered down from what was uh, suggested during the campaign. Be interesting, interesting to see how she uh, navigates this forward, Bill. Thanks so much for joining us. We're going to have to leave it there, buddy. Coming up, benched but not tossed out of the game. The board at Hockey Canada is stepping down, but they haven't left their roles just yet. We'll get the latest on that after this break. There's still a lot of work to do to reform the organization, to shift the culture within the organization, to uh, ensure uh, a, a culture change that'll protect uh, the values that Canadians want to see and uh, protect the integrity of the sport. I know Canadians have a lot of questions as well uh, about uh, the behavior of the Hockey Canada leadership over the past number of years. Uh, and I spoke just yesterday with our sport minister who is continuing uh, to work on this file to ensure that there is accountability and that there is transformation in the organization. And that was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau again today talking about yesterday's resignation of Hockey Canada's board and CEO. But the saga is far from done. We're waiting to hear who will be appointed as an interim management committee member and there's a question of compensation for the outgoing CEO. For more, let's bring in CTV News parliamentary reporter Annie Bergeron-Oliver. Annie, thanks for being here. So the PM, happy about this, mm -hmm. but clearly um, there's, there's more to this. You've been digging into who is actually on the board still and that the board is still there. Yeah, so the board is still technically there. If you read that statement very carefully, it says that the board of directors are going to be uh, stepping down, mm -hmm. but it says that they're not running for re-election and they will still continue to fulfill their fiduciary responsibilities. So I went back to Hockey Canada today and they said, yes, essentially the board is still there. They're still making decisions because they need a board of directors and that they will not be replaced until there is a new board uh, based on elections in December. They also said what's interesting is that the board of directors currently will 
will be the ones who are selecting this interim management committee. And again, we also don't know what the process is for that. Hockey Canada hasn't really given any information about who will be on that interim committee and really exactly what their duties will be in relation to the board of directors who's choosing them. Yeah, and I want to ask you about Scott Smith as well, the CEO of Hockey Canada. He's gone. We can confirm that. But on his way out the door, there's the possibility of compensation or this kind of settlement. What are you hearing on that? Well, it actually looks like a settlement has already been done and paid out. So Rick Westhead had been talking to Hockey Canada, and he actually just sent me the statement. It says that the board of directors, as well as Scott Smith, came to a mutual agreement about his immediate resignation. And it said that there has been uh, some type of payment based on uh, the contract that he had, his employment contract. But Hockey Canada said it would not be appropriate to provide information about somebody's personal private details. This sort of seems to go against what the sport minister was saying. Earlier today, she was asked whether it would be appropriate to give a severance to Scott Smith. And the sports minister said, look, we understand that there are contracts, but this has to be done in a transparent manner. So it's not really the most transparent when Hockey Canada is now saying there was a mutual agreement. They're saying it was done based on the contract, the employment contract that Smith had. Um, but they're not providing details. And let's not forget that Scott Smith may be new to the role as CEO, but he has been at Hockey Canada right. for more than 20 years. Yeah, and everything, it seems like the more we go eat by day by day, it's just new revelations like this type of thing. Annie, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks so much. We'll watch for more tonight. Your story on CTV National News. Really appreciate it. Next on Power Play, more aid for Ukraine. Canada is sending artillery, but also winter gear for troops on the front lines. Is it really what Ukraine needs? We'll ask our ambassador in Kyiv right after this. On behalf of the Government of Canada today, I would like to announce an additional approximately $50 million worth of military aid for Ukraine. This will consist of approximately $15 million worth of aid for winter equipment purchases. Hats, gloves, boots, parkas, the items that Ukrainian soldiers need on the front lines. That was Defense Minister Nita Anand announcing new military aid to Ukraine. She visited troops in Poland yesterday ahead of today's NATO meeting in Brussels. Now, Canada is sending $15 million worth of winter equipment, primarily from Canadian suppliers. Also, part of today's $47 million military aid package is $15.2 million in equipment from the Canadian Armed Forces inventory, including artillery, rounds, fuses, and charge bags. Another $15.3 million worth of of specialized drone cameras and approximately $2 million for satellite communication services. Now, this comes a day after Minister Anand announced 40 engineers from our military will be deployed to Poland to help train Ukrainian forces. But President Zelensky said he wanted more air defense support. So is Canada's aid falling short? Let's find out. And joining me now from Kyiv is Canada's ambassador to Ukraine, Larissa Galadza. Welcome, ambassador. First off, how are you and the staff there considering what everyone has been through since, uh, since the last few days? Thanks. Thanks for having me. You know, we've got, a, we've got a really strong staff of Ukrainians and Canadians working here, and the team came together to do what they needed to do and the, behaved the way that Ukrainian society behaves 
in these situations, which is to keep going, uh, to not stop. There's a lot of shattered glass on the streets uh, still, uh, uh, and in the in the windows. But um, but the work has continued. Everyone has just picked themselves up and kept going. Today, uh, you know, th- this was our neighborhood. Um, and today, on the way to work, I drove over the spot, the intersection where the where the missile hit, literally over that spot on my way to work. And it's 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 clean and it's clear. Um, and so that just gives you a sense of how determined Ukrainians are to uh, to not be beat, to not be stopped. And when you work in close proximity with that kind of determination, um, you're also inspired to keep going. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what does that do for your work, you know, even given Russia's escalation? And some may think, oh, well, is it still safe for Canada to operate our embassy in, in Kiev? But given what you're seeing around you, I mean, how does that sort of push you in the day to day and make sure also to keep everyone safe in the embassy? So we've got really rigorous processes and protocols to keep everyone safe and, and a, a lot of help in that regard. Um, but the, the moral hit that you take when, you know, when our, our people felt the, felt the, the impact, um, and these are our cafes and our gyms and our parks and our, our streets that, that, that we walk as well. Um, uh, you, you just you 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 just keep going, um, and we we were we are aware of all of the risks. Uh, we have the mitigation in place, uh, and this just uh, this just makes us even more determined, really. Yeah, and in speaking of that work, I mean, President Zelensky had also asked for uh, a, a Russia a cap on Russian oil and gas. Now, the latest statement from the G7 wasn't really clear on a commitment. You met with the Ukrainian Prime Minister today and other G7 ambassadors. Was there any movement on that cap today? We spoke a lot about a lot of things. Uh, we didn't speak about that. Um, but it was a very good discussion with the Prime Minister, as it always is, on a range of issues, um, from, from humanitarian assistance to um, the need for more help in demining, uh, which Canada today announced it's going to uh, provide with the engineering training um, and uh, and a variety of, of other issues that are, that are super relevant to the decisions that are being made in G7 capitals. I wanted to ask you, especially on energy here, though, as Ukraine continues to you know, march towards winter here, we're seeing attacks in the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. How fragile is the country's energy system right now and what can Canada do to help prop it up? The Ukrainians use a variety of sources for their for 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 heating uh, and for their energy, and they've got a really good handle on what those resources are and where they are. So we meet regularly with them, and they talk to us about 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 the balance of that energy and when, whether it's electricity or or um, or uh, coal power plants or hydro. It's um, they, they've got a good handle, and they're they're confident uh, that they're going to be able to uh, to make it through through. The winter. I want to ask you about that announcement today from Canada. Defense Minister Anita announced nearly $50 million in supplies, some of it artillery. Really, the bulk of it, though, was those drone cameras and then hats, boots, and gloves for the troops. I mean, that's necessary equipment, but certainly not the air defense that President Zelensky has been asking for. So, what did Prime Minister Shmahal have to say about that? So Prime Minister Shmihal talked to, was is incredibly grateful. And one of the points that he made today is that no contribution is too small, Uh, that everything that countries are providing is making a difference 
to their resilience, uh, their ability to prosecute those counteroffensives that we see going on on two fronts. Um, and I think today's uh, announcement from Minister Anand shows a f- few things. First of all, the range of, of assistance that Canada is able to provide, and we cannot uh, we cannot overstate the importance of those cameras of that winter gear, of that ammunition supply. Uh, everything is super important. But that, that announcement today also shows how we cooperate with all of our allies to together put together the, 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 the resources, the weapons, um, the, 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 the satellite images, the intelligence that Ukraine needs to fight this war and to win this war. This is a, this is a collective uh, effort among uh, Ukraine's closest friends, and together um, we're getting them everything that we can. I've just got under a minute now. I wanted to ask you, though, because we had another plane of Ukrainian refugees that arrived in Newfoundland last night. Uh, and given that in-person consular services have been paused at the embassy, I wanted to know two things. First of all, what role you and your staff are playing in helping Ukrainians get to Canada? Uh, but also, considering the attacks, if we see them continue to amp up in Kiev, do you expect more people to want to come to Canada? I think Ukrainians really appreciate the open door that Canada and Canadians offer them. Uh, that's the that's number one. Uh, I think that a lot of them still think about it. Then I in regular conversations with them, they they mention it. Um, I, we didn't see after Monday's attacks the kind of rush to the border or the rush out of even the city that we saw in the chaos uh, after the beginning mm-hmm. of, uh, of, of when, when Russia first uh, illegally invaded this country on February 24th. So I think people, I don't want to say they're getting used to it. They'll never be used to it, but I think they know how to deal with what's here. And, uh, and, um, and, and they'll, be, they'll be deciding uh, their own futures, which is the really nice thing that the Canadian uh, program allows them to do, uh, to have that visa, to come and to go, and to use it uh, in the way that best, um, best serves them. Ambassador, we appreciate you taking the time and stay safe for you and your staff there. Thank you very much, Mike. Thanks. That's Canada's ambassador to Ukraine, Larissa Galadza. Thanks again so much for being with us. Well, coming up, a new conservative resistance. Two premiers, Daniel Smith and Scott Moe, are ready to battle Ottawa for more provincial power. So does this spell trouble for the federal government? Nick Nanos joins the press gallery next. Stay right here. I look forward to work with her on a range of things that I know Albertans expect us to work together. Obviously, there's things we disagree on, but my focus will always be on the things that Canadians tell me are their priorities. Welcome back. There's a revival of the resistance underway in Western Canada, and both Alberta and Saskatchewan's premiers are drawing battle lines with Ottawa this week. Pierre Polyev, well, he's also set his list of critics. There's a lot of them on that list, and what's most interesting is who is left out of the contingent of critics. Let's bring on our press gallery to break it all down. We'll start left to right. Nick Nanos, pollster, thanks for being here. Tom McCharles from the Hi. Toronto Star, how are you? Thanks for being here. And Joyce Napier, I see you in the corridors every day, but you're our Parliamentary Bureau Chief. Thank you for being here as well. Tana, I'm going to start with you. What do you think about this resistance reboot? Well, I mean... Uh 
provincially, it was to be expected. We saw sort of these campaigns by the Quebec Premier, by the Alberta Premier. To me, what's interesting, though, is that Ontario has set itself outside of that new, newly energized, newly, I guess, more strongly conservative resistance. Mm -hmm. Scott Moe is still aligned with it. Um, but Ontario is still a pretty big player in Confederation, and I think Justin Trudeau has an ally in Doug Ford. So we'll see how that plays out. As for whether they find federal cohorts to back them up, the federal Conservatives have a lot of calculations mm -hmm. to make themselves, and I don't think they're going to want to too closely align with the new Alberta Premier. And Nick, I was going to ask you, what are we seeing in this country that's changed, that's kind of led to this? They're sort of feeling like there's a bit of wind in their sails here to come oh. out, Sovereignty Act, and now this, you know, drawing the line. I mean, what has led to this? Oh, there's, uh, there's a lot at play right now, Mike. You know, the numbers, when we ask Canadians what emotions they'd use to describe the government in Ottawa, uh, pessimism and anger are at the top of the list. And if you happen to be in the West, they're very, very angry compared mm -hmm. to, uh, to other Canadians. So, uh, so, you know, the appetite is there to push back at the Federation. And, you know, let's face it, Canadians can't pay the bills. They're struggling paying the rent. They can't, the mortgage rates are going up. And, uh, and there's a lot of anxiety. And right now, people are pointing the finger at the uh, federal government, whether they like it or not. And you know what? Why don't we do retro hour for a second, Tonda, Joyce? There was a time... <laughs> When there are lots of liberal no. provincial governments, it probably was easy to be the liberal prime minister of Canada. Fast forward now, not so much. Yeah. And one would think we may have to do, uh, redo that McLean's uh, photo, right? I mean, there are a couple of people have gone, but now you have new faces, new conservatives. Joyce, what I wanted to ask you is, you know, the fact that you've had Danielle Smith have to walk two things back already in her tenure here. What does that say for her? Uh, you know, you say something one day and then walk it back. Is this kind of in the playbook, though, of some of these premiers to make a big headline one day and then quietly try and move it back? Well, that's a typical, uh, you know, campaign ploy. You campaign and you say outrageous things and all of a sudden when you get the job, uh, you've got to become more reasonable. But look, it's three premiers. And I think there is critical mass there. And, um, yeah, you, you, you feel the dissatisfaction. I mean, we saw it here in Ottawa with the so-called Freedom Convoy. Look, there's something out there, and I think these politicians feel that they can bank on that, mm -hmm. uh, that they can make capital on this. And, you know, that's what they do. Um, you know, it's a tired seven-year-old liberal government. Um, so there's a lot of grumbling out there, and they're trying to capitalize on it. I'm, I'm interested to see, and I think it is a healthy debate, why not, um, why not give these, these provinces, or at least have a conversation with these provinces, about um, a different sharing of powers. It's different times. Tonda, does Trudeau have to go that way now? Does he have to shift gears and actually work with these people now? Well, he has to work with them insofar as he has to coordinate spending on things like health in areas where the federal government still has a big um, spending power. But I don't think, I'd, I'd have to disagree, I don't think that Justin Trudeau and the provinces will get any substantive constitutional conversation going about sharing of powers. Um, you know, the Federation has worked pretty well for 100 and plus, 50 plus years, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, for the federal government, a lot of the Supreme Court interpretations of how it can act in either the environmental areas, uh, I, I think it's going their way. So I don't think that they're going to give up power. And they might want to attach more strings to the kind of money that they are going to dispense on health, for example. Nick, I see you want to get in. We yeah, want to get to the critics got, soon, but go ahead. they got to watch out for Ontario and Quebec, because I'd like yeah. to add a little. I agree with you on the Ontario take, but I would kind of yeah. say friendly, not friends. 
when it comes to Doug Ford and the and the Trudeau government. And you know the thing is, is we've had recent elections in Ontario and Quebec. Both of those governments have big mandates, strong mandates. Mm -hmm. The Liberal government not very strong right now in terms of its brand. So they've got to watch out that you know to your point, Mike, the resistance doesn't become a contagion. Because if it spreads to any other, especially the big provinces, uh, they'll be like, it'll be kind of wrestling. You know the sleeper hold? Where they be one of those <laughs> the things. The million dollar dream? Yeah, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm old enough to remember yeah. that. But, not, you know, not a Kretchen choke hold, but it'll be like a sleeper. <laughs> Schwedigan handshake. Uh, Joyce, let's get to the critics list. Uh, interesting who's on it. Seems like everybody in the caucus is, except for two that are really interesting, to me anyways. Michelle Rempel-Garner, Ed Fast. Why were they left out? Well, clearly because uh, they're not on board with the new boss. Um, that's the way it works in politics. It's a nasty, a nasty business. And, uh, you know, Michelle Rempel-Garner is a very outspoken uh, critic, not only of the liberals, but of her own party. Um, and we know that Ed Fast, who was actually a really good finance critic, would have mm -hmm. been a very good one, uh, was not on board either. Look, that's the way it works in politics. You're with, you know, you're with me or you're out of the, uh, you know, the cool kids. And uh, clearly, Mr. Poiliev doesn't think they're cool kids. Is that the signal, Tonda, that either you're with me or you're not? Because he had said he's going to wrap his arms also, around. But they also might have made clear that they're not really interested in the way right. he's running things. And I have my doubts whether Mr. Fast will run again. Perhaps even Michelle Rempel-Garner will choose not to run again mm -hmm. in the next uh, campaign. But look, um, some, of, some people like Aaron O'Toole, Dan Albus, others ask not to be included. Right. We can't read too much into any of that. But what to me was stunning was this, this bloated shadow cabinet. Is that the way he's going to run a government? <laughs> like 70 ministers? Well, or associate ministers? A lot of, of, of Laurentian elite <laughs> gatekeepers right there. I mean, I think there's also a critic of hunting and fishing, if I'm not mistaken. I thought... For sure, I saw that. And civil liberties. I mean, who's opposed to civil liberties? But yeah, you know, it was, like, it was Christmas time. It was Christmas time. The people said, "Here, be a shadow cabinet minister. And, and, be and my friend. Be my friend. Be my friend. Be my so, friend." So, Nick, what does that signal? I mean, to the people a that he's left out, but also to the people who are holding ridings or people in the leadership. I mean, Leslie yeah. Lewis, you know, was, was given a prominent role as well. I think you know he left out individuals that were definitely not on board. And I think that's fair for any leader. Uh, I don't think anyone can really question that. And uh, I think him being, why don't we just call it generous in having lots, lots of uh, shadow cabinet ministers, will actually give him the latitude to evaluate who's a good performer and who's not a good performer. So, But get ready for the Hunger Games in about a year as they try to <laughs> narrow down that shadow cabinet. So maybe everybody's happy today, but there might be a lump of coal 12 yeah, months from uh, now. <laughs> I've got less than a minute. So Joyce, what do you think? Do you think that this is sort of sharing the wealth and seeing who's going to grab the spotlight. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting that 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 kind of a leader would have such an inflated shadow cabinet. I find that interesting. I mean, he's been railing against gatekeepers and against, and here he is. Like that's yeah. unprecedented. I don't know. I mean. Let's Tonda, do you remember one ever being that big of a shadow no, cabinet? No, no. And the, the fact, I mean, whether he's trying people out, you know, to see who can step into roles, uh, you know, they do that anyway on Mondays and Fridays when half of them aren't there. So right. everybody gets a, a chance. No, I, I think it's it's keep the troops happy, signal to everyone, oh, you're all important, keep them in line, perhaps loyal with, you know, the hope of getting a promotion if someone else steps out of line. And like Nick said, Hunger Games after when we realize that an election's <laughs> around the corner. Yep. <laughs> Buckle years. up. Two years. A year or two. Why don't we say? I'm given two.
Can we pray for three? No. It's no. not going to be right three. Fair, fair, three. fair enough. Hey, we all love politics. <laughs> no, we all no. want it anyway, right? Who are we kidding? Appreciate it, guys. We're going to swap out. Nick, stay with us after the break. We will be continuing. <laughs> the Canadian Civil Liberties Association will join us to talk about the start of the Emergencies Act inquiry. Stay here. Power Play is going to be right back. Sir. So those public hearings into the federal invocation of the Emergencies Act kick off tomorrow. The federal government's use of the Emergencies Act to end this year's Freedom Convoy protests has left many Canadians feeling divided. In the Critics' Corner, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and they are saying that the government's actions were unconstitutional and there were other options available. So, were they and what are they hoping for out of this inquiry? Let's ask them. Back here on the press gallery, we still have Joyce, we still have Tonda, and uh, Kerry uh, Zwiebel from the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Thanks for joining us here right now. So I wanted to ask you, um, specifically, your organization thinks that the government's actions were unconstitutional. Why is that? So... There's, I guess there's two things. There's, there's unlawful and unconstitutional. The unlawful piece is that we, we don't think the legal threshold that was set out under the Emergencies Act was actually met. It requires a, a serious threat to national security. Mm -hmm. It requires that no other law be capable of addressing the situation. And those are things that we don't believe are, are true in this case, or at least we don't have the evidence from the government to back that up. Um, then the orders that the government put in place once they invoked the, the state of emergency are, are the things that are unconstitutional. They put these significant restrictions on people's uh, rights to assemble. They, um, they allowed financial institutions to freeze assets without any process or notice. So those are the things that we're concerned about, and those are things that we're hoping to learn more about over the course of, of the public hearings. I'm sorry, I'm, I missaid your name at the beginning. It's Cara. I'm, I apologize no for that. Uh, what are the tools, though, that they have in legislation to actually get it done? Because a lot of people, if you're walking in Ottawa, you said, get this done no matter what it takes. Right. And, and you know, the, to be clear, the position is not that, you know, it should have been a hands-off sort of right. approach. I think, first of all, the, the federal government was slow in giving the resources to the Ottawa police that they were asking for. Um, I know that, that resources sort of trickled mm -hmm. in at the beginning and then, and then came more quickly um, uh, later on after a few weeks. Um, I think there's also questions about whether um, there are things that they could have done through legislation, through expedited legislation. but. You know, through a legislative process that does involve Parliament rather than a state of emergency, which takes the, the power into the hands of the executive and, and bypasses the normal democratic process. So essentially a screwdriver instead of a sledgehammer is what you were looking yeah. for. Yeah, yeah. scalpel, I yeah. would say. <laughs> scalpel. <laughs> Joyce, in, in terms of the list of people who are going to be there or not going to be there, we're not seeing anybody like Doug Ford, we're not seeing Premier Jason Kenney, very few provincial officials. Are you concerned about that at all? Absolutely. I think that, look, th there was a failure from, from day one, even, even day minus two, before, before this even started. Um, is it a failure of communication? Is it a failure of policing? Is it a failure? Uh, did our politicians not take this seriously mm -hmm. enough? Um, you know, the former chief of police was warned by people, look, they were worried. Uh, city councillors were worried. Um, you know, did, did, what, did we take it too lightly? And yes, I think that I would like to know if the bar was too low for the federal government. What kind of precedent in our country does this set now? Uh, and I think that's important. Um, that's legacy stuff.
Uh, but I would like to know why, what was the role of the provincial government? Uh, there are mm. provincial police, there is jurisdiction, and there's like how many jurisdictions on Parliament Hill and in front of Parliament Hill? Was that too much bureaucracy? Was What was the problem? And uh, I think that we're going to get those answers. I hope we get those answers. Part of the answers is, what was the thinking, right? And so Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Tonda, has signaled a willingness to appear. Mm -hmm. Does that sort of show us anything in sense of he has nothing to hide? He's not going to invoke cabinet confidence and he wants to get his narrative out there? Well, I think the bigger indication of what they're thinking is, is the fact that they've waived cabinet confidence on thousands and thousands of yeah. documents. And so, you know, hopefully uh, with those documents will not be redacted to any great extent, that they won't claim more privilege over them, uh, national security interests and, you know, information shared by allies or any of that stuff. Hopefully there will be the kind of transparency that I think the government is hoping for. But at the end of the day, I'm not even sure that uh, we'll get the kind of transparency that we really need, which is the transparency into the Ottawa police operations, mm -hmm. why they failed so colossally yeah. to control that blockade. They had intelligence before the truckers arrived about what their intentions were. And I'm not sure we're going to get transparency on how the provincial government handled it either. We're going to get federal documents, but we're not going to understand what was the thinking behind the OPP and the Solicitor General in Ontario, right. why they didn't move massive amounts of OPP resources into the city of Ottawa and control it. It's not a federal jurisdiction down right. on that street. And so... I'm somewhat pessimistic. I think already we know of a massive police failure in leadership and management of the crisis, but I just don't think we'll get everything we need to know to understand how that interacted with the feds and why they had to pull the trigger on the Emergencies Act. In the end, it may not be justified, but we right. won't know exactly where the failures were. Cara, how key is that for you to see, to make sure that we have all the pieces on the table so that we know what led to it? Yeah, I think, I think it's really important, and I, I mean... I, you know, I have now access to a, a, a whole lot of documents that, I, <laughs> that I'm working my way through. Um, I think there will be some some information that will come out about the sort of interjurisdictional issues that affect this, and I think that's one of the things that the sort of policy phase of the commission is also going to look at. Is you know, does the fact that we have municipalities and prov and provincial governments and the federal government all involved in this, how does that complicate things, and mm -hmm. how can we? How can we address that in, in, in the future? So um, I think those are things that, you know, I do think they're important to, to get at the heart of, I, I guess, you know, time will tell whether we'll actually get that out of this. You were this mentioning mission. also earlier about the, the freezing of funds. How much of that in your mind was an overreach? Because Minister Freeland said that that was so key in sort of choking off the actual protest, not only here on Parliament Hill, but I mean, especially here on Parliament Hill. How worried are you that they looked at that and thought, ah, maybe we can use this again? Yeah, I think the, the, the overreach for me is is the scope of those powers. So mm -hmm. to me, you know, if you have reasonable grounds to believe that an individual is engaged in some illegal activity and that they are using funds to carry out that activity, then you might have grounds to, to take these measures. The problem is that these orders applied in a very broad way. They were written broadly, and I think they were written intentionally broad and intentionally um, vague, so that people, people weren't sure, if I donate, am I caught by this? Because the government was saying, just don't donate. 
right? Yeah. And the government, I think, has said it was never our intention to freeze the assets of someone who made a $20 donation. But if someone decided not to make a $20 donation because they were worried, we're okay with that result. I think that's what the government's message has been. And, and we're concerned about that, the sort of chilling effect that these broad orders can have on the way that people exercise their rights and freedom. So it's, it's not that there's necessarily a problem with taking that measure. It's, it's that you know, you've blown it wide open. Right. You've sort of said to the financial institutions, do your due diligence. And if you think someone's involved in this, you have the power to freeze their assets. I mean, that's an enormous amount of power to hand over to these entities. I've got 30 seconds to split between the two of you. What is at stake with these public hearings? I think we want to know what conversations happened, because if the Civil Liberties Association is saying there were other tools, were they even talking about the tools or did they go from one to 100 without thinking right. that there were other tools where they that lost at that point. Yeah, I just think, yeah, of course, there's more than just, you know, was a legal threshold met? Were the legal requirements met? It's a political question. It's a, yeah. one that will carry forward for the next couple of years. This government will have to wear it, whether Judge, Justice Rulo makes a call that, yes, you were justified given all the circumstances or you weren't. It'll be something politically that they'll wear for a long time. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you all so much. Kara uh, Zwiebel with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Tony McCharles with the Toronto Star, Joyce Napier, CTV Ottawa's bureau chief right here. Thank you very much. That's your Power Play Day in Politics, everyone. Thanks so much for spending your time with us. We'll be right back here tomorrow. Until then, have a great night. Okay,